we've heard a lot about the fires out in California and in the Pacific Northwest and so forth. But then there's the, the, the flooding that took place in Zion and uh, the lives that were lost, that hiking group uh, that lost their lives. And in that particular area, there's a lot of danger because of the way the water accumulates. And it accumulates in such a way that all the way from Canada down through Montana and Idaho, uh, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, down into New Mex- or into Mexico and south, there's what is called the Great Divide. All the water that falls from the, the sky <laughs> to the west of the Great Divide, the Continental Divide, goes to the Pacific Ocean. All the water that falls to the east of this divide goes to the Gulf of Mexico or over into the Atlantic Ocean. And that divide is so critical to the direction which the water flows that there's no reversal. One way, the other way. There was a hill in Israel called Mount Calvary. And on Mount Calvary, there was a cross. And on that cross hung the Lord Jesus Christ. And on one side, there was a thief. And on the other side, there was a thief. The one mocked Christ, asked him to perform a miracle in bringing them all down from the cross. On the other side was a thief who began to mock Christ, but then turned and in faith recognized that Christ was the one who had been promised as the Messiah to Israel and ultimately, as we know, the Savior to us. And he looked to Christ and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the Lord's response was, this day you will be with me in paradise. There was a dividing line. Critical one way or the other. There was no middle ground. It's one or the other. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul makes a very, very clear distinction between the two ways. And I would like you to look at this with me, if you will, please. As we talk about the stone that divides, Christ is made reference to here. And and we can extend that by saying the cross itself is the place where Christ creates this divide. There is a division that occurs. And Paul talks about this division, and he says this. He says, first of all, there are those who are my people, and then there are those who are not my people. As you look at this passage, you're going to see that in a way, there are some arguments that are raised today to try to... I guess people try to use uh, these arguments to salve their their own conscience. Uh, But more than that, to salve their their souls, to give them uh, a hope that everything is going to be okay in the end. And generally speaking, it, it falls down into several different categories. They use these arguments. They will say, Um, we believe in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Have you heard that expression before? In other words, we, we all are God's children. 
And we are all brothers and sisters of one another. And in one respect, there is some truth to that. God is the creator. He is the one who called human life into being, and he created male and female. And so in the human race, we have a common creator. But this is going to show us that God is not the father of all people. Others will say something like this. There are so many of us who don't believe what you extreme fundamentalists believe. We can't all be wrong, can we? Certainly, God will be merciful to the mass of humanity, and Paul is going to address that. He's going to address some other arguments that are made through this. We cannot believe that a loving God would ever allow anyone to be condemned and to, to go to a place called hell, which will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. We just can't believe that a loving God can be that way. And, and Paul's going to address that. So let's look at how he makes this dividing line where where at the cross of Christ you fall on one side or the other. In the first verses that Pastor Luke read today, we see this. In verse 25 it says, As he says also to, or in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Here comes this argument. The fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man. We all belong to God. And it's only the extreme sinful individuals that will ever be lost. Somebody like a Hitler, a murderer, people like that. That's who hell has been designed for. But the Lord doesn't draw that distinction. He, He classifies everyone into one of two groups. You are either my people or you are not my people. He makes a reference here understanding that the people in Rome would know their scriptures. Now, for them, they didn't have the benefit that we have of having the the entirety of the New Testament, but they did have the Old Testament. And Paul is making an assumption that they know the book of Hosea. Do you all remember what happened in Hosea? Hosea was a book that God had written through the prophet in sending a message through a, a metaphor to the people of Israel in the north, you, you, you recall that there was a division in the kingdom and the southern tribe of Judah broke away, or I should say the northern tribes of Israel broke away from the southern tribe of Judah. It was all called Israel at one time, but then with this division, the northern tribes were Israel, the southern tribe was, was Judah. The prophet Hosea was giving a message to both the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah, that they had not been following him as they ought. And and here comes the example of Hosea the prophet. God says to Hosea, I want you to take a woman as your wife from among the harlots. And I want you to have children with her, 
And they had several children. Jezreel was one that was, was born initially. And then there were two others. And if you were to go back to the book of, uh, of Hosea, the, the one was uh, low... Oh, I have it written down. These, these are very common names today. Low Ruhama. Okay? Low Ruhama. Not loved. And another daughter named Lo Am I. Not my people. And so through these children, God was sending a message to the people of Israel in their present spiritual condition, which was degenerating and moving away from him. They were identified as not his people. Lo Rahama. And they were identified by him as being in a situation where they were low Ami, no longer loved. They had drifted so far that he was bringing upon them a realization that that drift was going to bring upon them a destructive element. And, and he's, Paul's going to take us further into that as we go further in this passage. But here, here is what the Lord was saying. When they fall away like that, they will not be my people. And the Gentiles who were not my people, are going to be turned in the future to become my people. Uh, Look back in the verses that immediately precede this, and and you're going to notice that the Lord is showing the the depths of his mercies. Uh, If you begin there, uh, let's say at verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now what God is saying is this, though you were not my people, though you were not loved as a people, the time is coming that you will become my people. And the picture was demonstrated in Hosea, who after he had these children with Gomer, his wife, she decided she wasn't happy with her living situation. And she decided that she wanted more of what the world had to offer. And so she prostituted herself. And she left her husband and became involved again in her harlotries, and God said to Hosea, now you go get her again and bring her back to yourself so that those who were not my people now will become my people. And so Hosea goes out and through the picture of his life, a very, very difficult situation, he brings Gomer back to be his bride once again, and God sends this message to Israel. The day is coming when I will regather you and you will be my people. And in addition to that, the sacrifice of Christ, which according to the Jew was simply for the nation of Israel, for the people of Israel, he is going to reach to the Gentiles as well. And those who were not my people will be called my people. What will make the difference for us? The difference is the cross. Which side of the cross? Not my people. 
my people. Paul goes on into the verses that follow, and he introduces us to another, another thought. He tells us about the remnant that is going to be saved. And so now he's kind of jacking up the, the argument that he's making. In verses 27 and 28, he says this, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Now you have this argument about a remnant and the multitudes. And he describes the multitudes as being as numerous as the sands of the seas. He's using a hyperbole when he describes this. But what he is saying is this, that there are those who would say, we can't all be wrong. God would never allow people to be separated from him as long as we are sincere. We can believe in other gods. We can believe in our own capabilities. We can't all possibly be wrong. And you've probably heard people make arguments like this. There are many roads that lead to God. Have you heard that? I've heard that on a number of occasions. And, And we know this. There is one road. Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through him. And so what Paul is describing here as he quotes from Isaiah the prophet is the reality that the multitude that exists does not constitute the basis upon which God accepts people into his kingdom. It is a remnant that will believe It is a remnant that will be saved. And he makes reference again, and and if you read the context of what Isaiah said in the prophecy that's being quoted here, what you find is that he is making reference to the coming attack of the Assyrians in the northern tribe, and he's coming uh, also identifying the fact of the Babylonian attack on the southern tribe of Judah, and, and taking them captive. And, he, and he's going to tell us more about that. He, he's constantly going back to these moments of judgment, these times in which the people of Israel are put through great trial. And what he identifies is this. When these trials come, the multitude is going to die. They're going to be lost. Only a remnant will be saved. A remnant in Israel, a remnant in Judah. And so what he does is he helps us understand that with this judgment, it is very easy to follow the pathway of those that are following the road to destruction. They've come down on the wrong side of the cross. They are not turning to Christ, and they are the ones who will be separated from God for all eternity. Now we look at what's happening today and what do we see? Are Jews being saved today? Yes. There is a remnant of Israel that is being saved. You know, one of the the things that is a blessing for us, and, and I'm delighted that things worked out this way, for those of you who have been with us for a number of years, you remember the, the situation that was developing in the house right next door to our property here. As you go west... Uh, there was a, essentially a satanic group that wanted to purchase that house. 
and there was no legal recourse that we had to, to stop them, but there is something much greater than legal recourse. It's called prayer. And our people prayed. Do you remember when we were praying that God would frustrate the plans of the people that were intending to go over there? And, and next thing we know, we see the house being renovated, and it's like, oh, this is so sad. We're really sorry to see this until the folks that were renovating gave us a call and asked if they could come over. And so they came, and uh, as they came into the room, I noticed that uh, the gentleman, who did not speak English, was carrying a couple books with him. And as I looked closer, the books had Hebrew on the outside, and it turns out they were the Hebrew Bible. And he gave them to me. And the lady that was with him, his translator, told us that this property had now been purchased by a uh, Jewish group that was messianic. That they are Jews who have trusted in Christ as their Savior, who still observe to a large extent the traditions of Israel, which are traditions that point toward the person of Christ. And now what they're doing is they are reaching out to the Jewish community and members of the Jewish community are coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior. But only a remnant, just a small number. And then there are the Gentiles, those that are not Jews. And would you say today that the multitude is coming to Christ or that the remnant is coming to Christ? It's the remnant. Uh, you, you look around and, and you see people who on one hand would say that they're Christian, but they have no idea. You, you would ask a question like this, uh, and, and this is one of the great questions. If you died, and you, you have to be real gentle how, how you say this. You don't want to say it with a voice of anger. If you died today, that's not the way you ask this. If you were to die, and then you generally say something like, Lord forbid... Um, and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell him? And you know what you usually hear? Well, I've been pretty good. I, I, you know, I've done the best that I can. Uh, oh, I, uh, my parents had me baptized when I was a baby. So, so I've been taken care of. I went through catechism. And, and I was received into the church. I, I had my first communion, and, and, and I wore a pretty little dress if it was a girl, and uh, I wore a little suit and coat and tie, and, and I went through that, and uh, I've really been doing my best to do good, and, and they miss the whole point, and what they don't understand is they're on the side of the multitude. Have no idea who Christ is and what he's done for us. But then on the other side, there are those who come to the place where they recognize, apart from the grace of God, I am lost and undone. I have no hope. And I know that I have sin in my life. And I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And a remnant comes to know Christ as their Savior. And today, just a remnant meets together. Uh, do you have trouble coming here on Sunday mornings? Do you have any backups of traffic? When we come in on Monday morning to, to school, Debbie's coming in to teach, and 
we were driving in and there's backups of cars and everywhere. You get out on Sunday morning and what is it? It's a ghost town. It is, I mean, it's really kind of nice. You can get here in a hurry. Why? Because the multitude doesn't give God a second thought. But a remnant does. And it's never going to be the great numbers. It's always going to be the remnant. And so Paul identifies that for us here in this passage in verses 27 and 28. As we come to verse 29, he takes us into a third realm and he tells us this. And as, as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, that's not Sabbath, that's Sabaoth. That means the, the Lord of hosts, the, the one who is the ruler of the armies of heaven. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Now he divides the spared from the condemned and he uses a picture that you and I are familiar with today because we've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah and how the Lord brought down a judgment upon those people because of their sexual immorality. By the way, I want to clarify this because this is one of the big arguments today among those who believe in homosexual marriage, who believe men can marry men, women can marry women. You say, well, it's so clear. The Bible makes it clear about the sin of Sodom and the sin of Gomorrah and how God brought a judgment upon them. But do you know what the, those who try to justify gay marriage say? Why, why Sodom was destroyed? Lack of hospitality. I've had to face several people in that situation and they tell me, oh, no, 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 no. It was because they were inhospitable. Well, let me ask you a question. How long would we survive? Are you hospitable? If not, watch out. I'm kidding. The problem with Sodom, it's, because, it's where we get the word sodomy. It was a homosexual practice that was going on and it was such a degrading event and such a degrading unfolding of relationships that God said there is going to be a judgment that falls upon these people and he brought the judgment because they fell on the wrong side they did not embrace the God of creation they did not embrace the God of the Old Testament they lived their lives independently of him and chose a lifestyle that was contrary to what he had outlined very clearly in his word God created them male and female period and so God brought judgment now he used that in the book of Isaiah Isaiah, I'll get it out, he used that in the book of Isaiah to tell the people of Israel that the judgment that befell Sodom and Gomorrah would be the judgment that will befall them. Now remember, Paul is writing subsequent to this prophecy. Isaiah was writing at the time of the, of the events that were unfolding and he brings us back again. Go back in the context of where this quote is taken from and he brings us back again to the reality that there is going to be a judgment and some will be spared but most will be condemned. And so he says to the northern tribes, 
the Assyrians are mounting up an attack against you. And they are going to be the instrument that I will use in my hand to bring judgment upon you because of your rejection of me as your God. And then in the same breath, Isaiah turns to the southern tribe of Judah and says, you are going to be the ones who are going to be uh, disciplined by the people of Babylon. And they are going to come and they are going to bring down a judgment upon you because you have rejected the true and the living God. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian armies marched down into the northern tribes and there was an incredible slaughter that took place. People were condemned to death because of their rebellion against God and most of the tribes that had individuals who survived that attack were taken up into Assyria and the interesting thing is they never again were identified tribally Back in the land of Israel, they were never given the opportunity to come back. Now, some have made their way back. But at that time, that did not occur. Then in 586 B.C., the the Babylonians came into the southern tribe of Judah and did the same thing to them and brought about a destruction. And it actually came about in a variety of different steps. There were, there, there were some uh, brief incursions that the Babylonians made and they took some of the people captive. In, in the first incursion, Daniel and the other children that became known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were taken to Babylon and they were living there in the, that kingdom. But later, when the people of Israel rebelled against the the authority of the Babylonians. The Babylonians came in, essentially destroyed the tribes of Judah and took a remnant of the people captive. And then after they were captive for 70 years, God allowed them to return to the land. And these now became the people who reproduced to the point of the coming of Christ himself through the people of Israel. These Jewish people that were from the tribe of Judah began to reproduce and now the the tribes began to grow and then finally the coming of Christ, the one who would be the stumbling stone, the rock of offense, came. But the people of Israel looked at him and they said, we'll have no part of this. There was a remnant. There was a small group. There were those that were spared. But the majority of the people said, we don't want anything to do with him. As a matter of fact, they cried out for his crucifixion. And he was crucified. And as the people cried out, Pilate, in his effort to try to release him, said, I don't find any fault in this man. And they cried out, if you don't take care of him the way we want you to, you are no friend of Caesar's. Now that puts fear in people, especially in that day. And so he relented, Pilate relented, and he caused Christ to be turned over, (coughs) pardon me, for crucifixion. And the people of Israel said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. That was somewhere around 32, 33 A.D. 
maybe a little later. About 35 years later, the very curse that they brought down upon themselves was fulfilled. In 70 AD, the Roman soldiers came to the city of Jerusalem under the general Titus, and they destroyed the city and they slaughtered the people. And there were those who were condemned, but there were those who were spared. And it all depended on where they fell when the judgment came. Now, we have the condemnation coming once again. But here's the beauty. Condemnation fell again, but this time it fell on Christ. Do you understand that? It's not a matter of the people of Israel being condemned. Now it's a matter of the Son of God being condemned. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. And so now there's another condemnation that fell. But this time the condemnation of sin fell upon the shoulders of Christ. And there at the cross of Calvary, the penalty for our sin, the price of our sin was paid through his sacrifice. And when he died for us, he paid it in full. To Telestai. Paid in full. The words translated in our scriptures, it is finished. To Telestai. And now the judgment has come and the condemnation has been carried by the person of Christ so that those who come to him on the right side of the cross and put their trust in him as their savior pass from death into life. Paul says this, this is the dividing line. What are you going to do with Christ? He doesn't stop at that point because he goes on into the remaining verses. And if you'll pick up with me down there at verse 30, we read this. He says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who, do not, who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And now he tells us, there's another dividing line between the righteous and the self-righteous. And here comes the argument. I'm sure God will allow me into heaven because I've really done the best that I can. I follow the Ten Commandments. Well, first of all, that's not true. No one has ever kept them. And, but for the most part, I look at the Ten Commandments. Yeah, on the, on the scale, I'm going to be okay. Um, 
I'm not as bad as, and then they can throw somebody else's name into the mix. Can you think of somebody who's worse than you? In behavior? I hear a, a, a murmuring among the crowd. Can you think of someone that's worse than you? In behavior? Okay. Can you think of someone who's worse than them? Or I should say than they? Can, can you think of someone who's worse than they? So it all works back to, there's just going to be one person who goes to hell with that theory. Because you can always find somebody worse than yourself. See, I have these thoughts that enter my mind. You, some of you might say something like, yeah, I live with them. Um, but no, 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 no. That was just a thought. I didn't say that. Um, Here you have the situation where Paul draws attention to the Israelites and he says, they did the very best that they can legally. As a matter of fact, their self-righteousness was a whole lot better than most of the self-righteousness of people who are living today. They were very meticulous about trying to keep the law, which they could not keep. But they tried. They, they tried to maintain the law. But the Lord says this. He says, they did not attain righteousness by their own efforts. The Gentiles who came to Christ through faith, they gained a righteousness that was not their own. It was not earned by their own efforts. Their righteousness was based upon their faith in Christ and the imputation of his righteousness to them. And then he brings us to this conclusion. Jesus is the stumbling stone. And when you come to him, you either trip over him and fall or you fall before him and you receive the forgiveness and the eternal life that only he can give. And then he says this, and I guess this is perhaps what is going to be most meaningful to those of us who know Christ as Savior. Those who come to him will never be put to shame. You know what that means, literally? You will never be disappointed. one side or the other. Reject Christ, not my people. Part of the multitude. Those who are condemned. The self-righteous that have no righteousness. Or you put your trust in Christ and you become his people. You become part of the remnant. You receive a righteousness that is not your own. And when you come to him, you will not be disappointed. Okay, there's a couple hundred people here today. Those of you who have trusted Christ as your Savior, how many of you are disappointed in what you found in Christ? (laughs) Even if you were, you wouldn't answer that, would you? That, that social pressure would be, be an issue for us. But, but in reality, and, and here's an assumption I'm going to make, that you're, you legitimately know what I'm saying and you're answering this in all honesty. I have never been disappointed in Christ. 
everything he promised, he has delivered. But by the way, things he did not promise to me, I can't expect him to deliver. Do you understand that? Sometimes people's expectations of what Christ will do for them are not biblical expectations at all. They are the, the development of their own desires. And, and if I want this badly enough, and if I can work up enough faith, God's going to give it to me. Oh, he didn't give it to me. I'm so disappointed. No, everything he's promised, he has given us. I, I, I want to show you a passage. Take your Bibles and turn back to the book of 2 Timothy, or pardon me, 2 Peter, where Peter really gives us an interesting parallel to what Paul had described to us there in Romans chapter 9. In 2 in, in Peter, I keep saying this, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, begin reading with me down there at verse 4. You, you don't read out loud because we have probably different translations here, so, so just listen to this. Here's what he says. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. In Christ, the precious one makes me accepted before God. And everything that I've put into my basket of faith in Christ is delivered. I am clothed in his righteousness, therefore I am accepted in the beloved. Read on. Verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is something else that he gives me. Not only acceptability to the Father, but he gives me a purpose to live. Why are you living? Okay, that would be the perfect answer, wouldn't it? I'm living for the glory of God. How are you doing? How are you doing? See, here's the issue. When we come to know Christ as Savior, we don't live the same way that people who don't know Him live, like the multitude lives. They live to accumulate the most of what this life has to offer. They live to be comfortable. Listen, if you, if you want to hear how the world thinks, and by the way, I understand that believers would think this way too to a certain degree, but if you ask a person, what do you want for your children? Do you know the answer you're going to get? I want them to be happy. Isn't that what you hear? That's what I hear. I want them to be happy. Well, yes. I would like my children and now my grandchildren to be happy. I would like them to be healthy. But if that's your purpose for living, that is so empty. Our purpose for living is to glorify our Creator and to bring honor and glory to the name of our Savior and to live for His honor and we use our jobs so that we can do that, not to keep accumulating more and more and more and more. 
And we look at our families and we say, yes, we want you to be happy. We want you to be healthy. But most of all, we want you to know Christ as your Savior. And if you know Christ as your Savior, I'm going to tell you something right now. You may not always be happy. Because those of us who know Christ as Savior are sometime on the end of getting bullied. Right? I went to public school. I think I was the only believer in the whole school. I'm sure there were others, but man, they were hiding. And it wasn't always easy. I got threatened. Simply because I was a follower of Christ. Thankfully, God intervened. Didn't have to worry. You may not always be happy. You may not be happy at work because you may come down as a person who doesn't advance because of your faith in Christ. You're not willing to cheat. You're not willing to lie. You're not willing to steal. So you're not going to get ahead. That's okay because your purpose is to glorify God. That's your purpose. I'm not ashamed. I'm not disappointed. I've got a reason to live. Go on. Look at verse 6. Therefore, it is also contained in the scriptures, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. He is reiterating exactly what the Apostle Paul says. You will not be disappointed. Drop down. Let's, let's go right down to verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You walk in the light, and you can see where you're going. Is that not good? Guess guess where the abortionists are walking. They're walking in darkness. They're taking the lives of those who are, are created in the image and likeness of God. And they're making decisions that are, are wiping out millions of, of babies. What about the people that say this? You know what? We have to live together for a while before we get married so we're, we're going to be able to see uh, just how things go if we do get married. That's darkness. That's sin. The Lord warns us about sexual immorality. And why do you think it is that the number of divorces among those who lived together before they got married is higher than the the number of divorces of those who didn't live together before they got married? They're walking in darkness. We walk in the light. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. We may not always agree about everything that we do or everything that we get involved in, but here's one thing I do know. Sin is sin and righteousness is righteousness. And God's very clear about it. Very clear about it. Keep going. Verse 10. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Do you know what I need from God? Mercy. If he gave me what I deserved, I'd be dead. 
so would you. But those who come to the right side of the cross and cast themselves upon the stone and trust in Christ have mercy. We have mercy. And we are never, ever disappointed. Right? Right. Let's stand. Thank you, Father, for this portion of your word that takes us back to that which you did with Israel and brings us right to today where we live. And Father, I thank you that those who trust in Christ as their Savior will never be disappointed. Thank you for the life that you give through Christ. Thank you for the hope that you've given us. And thank you for the privilege of having a reason for which to live. Amen. God bless you.